0: Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X, and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM Let's create. Hey everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to This Day in History class, a show for those who can never know enough about history. I'm Gabe Lussier, and today, we're taking a closer look at one of the most popular world's fairs of all time, including the weird exhibits, classic attractions, and breakthrough inventions that debuted there. The day was April 22nd, 1964. The second New York World's Fair opened at Flushing Meadows Park in the Queens borough of New York City. The sprawling fair featured dozens of exhibits and attractions representing 80 nations, 24 U.S. states, and nearly 50 corporations. The theme of the show was A Millennium of Progress, a cheery sentiment that was well reflected by the optimistic visions of the future presented in the exhibits. The fair operated for about a year and a half and wasn't anywhere near as profitable as its organizers had hoped, but by most other measures, the event was a triumph. All these years later, the 1964 World's Fair is still fondly remembered for its space-age flair and its unique blend of earnest idealism and blatant commercialism. In general, World's Fairs have lost a lot of their luster over the years. So much so, in fact, that many listeners might not even be familiar with the concept. So let's start with the basics. A World's Fair is like an international trade show, but not restricted to a single industry and with much more public appeal. They feature lavish exhibits hosted by different kinds of companies and organizations, as well as countries from around the globe. The point of the exhibits is to introduce upcoming products, demonstrate scientific advancements, or test out ideas for how to improve agriculture or aviation or whatever else. There's a commercial aspect to the fairs, to be sure, but there are more high-minded aspirations as well. In fact, world's fairs are sometimes compared to the Olympics in that regard. They're both inclusive, world-spanning events that are meant to celebrate human achievement and camaraderie and progress. Making a bunch of money along the way is more of a secondary goal, at least in theory. Modern World's Fairs got their start in 1851, when Britain hosted the Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations in London. It wasn't nearly as catchy a name as World's Fair, but most countries actually don't use that term. Great Britain described all the fairs they hosted as exhibitions, while most of continental Europe and Asia have chosen to call them International Expositions. It all amounts to the same event in the end, and there's even a single governing body that oversees where and when the events are hosted. It's called the Bureau of International Expositions, or the BIE. This Paris-based organization has run all the official expos since it was established in 1928. There are all kinds of rules about who can host exhibitions and how often they're allowed to occur. For example, the current rule is that one large exposition can be held every five years, and one smaller one can be held in between. Another major rule is that only one event is allowed per country every ten years. And here's the thing. In 1964, the United States broke both of those rules. Seattle, Washington, had hosted its own big exposition just two years earlier. That meant it was too soon for New York City to host its own large-scale World's Fair. But infamous city planner Robert Moses wouldn't take no for an answer. After the BIE rejected his proposal, Moses said, oh well, and carried on with what was basically a rogue World's Fair. Because the fair didn't earn accreditation from the BIE, some European countries refused to have any involvement with the unsanctioned event. This included some heavy hitters, too. For instance, France, Britain, and Italy all chose to sit out the fair. This forced the organizers to get a bit creative. They brought in more corporate-sponsored exhibitions, but they also extended an invitation to smaller geopolitical powers that had been traditionally shut out from such events. This was the unexpected benefit of the fair's rogue status. It allowed nations as diverse as Thailand, Morocco, and Honduras to seize the spotlight on the world stage. These international exhibits served as an introduction for tens of millions of Americans to the history, language, and food of dozens of less familiar cultures. Another standout aspect of the 1964 World's Fair were the corporate-sponsored exhibits that had been designed and built by Walt Disney and his freshman crew of Imagineers. Walt had been a lifelong fan of World's Fairs, and the clearest example of his passion was his Disneyland theme park. Roller coasters and Ferris wheels are theme park attractions that got their start at World's Fairs, but the entire concept of highly-themed areas filled with different attractions is lifted whole cloth from World's Fair pavilions. So naturally, Walt Disney was thrilled when the 1964 exhibition was announced for New York City. He wanted to be a part of it in any way he could. And he definitely got his wish, ultimately designing and building not one, but four different attractions for that year's fair. And true to the fair's theme of space-age progress, the focal point of all of Disney's exhibits were robots, or as he called them, audio-animatronics. Disney had debuted that technology a year earlier with the birds and his Enchanted Tiki Room attraction at Disneyland. But it was at the 1964 World's Fair that this new form of robotic animation really came into its own. For example, Disney made a lifelike recreation of Abraham Lincoln for the fair's Illinois Pavilion, the state where Lincoln practiced law and later served in government. It was one of the most ambitious audio animatronics the company had ever attempted. That was partly due to the complex hydraulic system that drove the figure's movements, but there was also the fact that the robot was made to look like an actual person. At that point, a robot had never been built with the convincing likeness of a real human being. Yet when National Geographic took an early look at Disney's work in 1963, they concluded that the animatronic Lincoln was, quote, alarming in its realism. When the exhibit opened at the fair, Disney's take on Lincoln looked so real that a five-year-old boy in the audience thought it was the real deal. He reportedly looked up at his father and shouted, Daddy, I thought you said he was dead. The artists at Disney were able to pull off such a convincing likeness thanks to the forethought of the real Abraham Lincoln. Just two months before his assassination, President Lincoln allowed a sculptor to make a life mask of his face, and almost exactly a hundred years later, that's what Disney used to make their version as accurate as possible. The Lincoln exhibit proved to be such a hit that the company overhauled the animatronic to make it even more convincing, and then installed it as a permanent attraction in Disneyland the following year. If you're like me you're probably wondering about those other three attractions that featured audio animatronics. Well, don't worry, I've got you covered. First up, there was a charming little boat ride you may have heard of called It's a Small World. The attraction was originally made as part of the fair's UNICEF Pavilion, which was sponsored by Pepsi that year. Next, there was the Carousel of Progress, designed for the General Electric Pavilion. Still running at the Magic Kingdom in Disney World, The attraction is a rotating theater that switches between scenes of audio animatronics acting out scenes of domestic life through the decades, and showcasing a bunch of GE products in the process. Lastly, and probably best of all if you ask me, there was the Magic Skyway at the Ford Pavilion. Ford debuted a brand new sports car at the fair that year, the Mustang. To help sell the public on the new design, the company teamed with Disney to build a ride system where fairgoers could board motorless Mustang convertibles and be slowly pulled along a conveyor belt. If that sounds a little dull, well, that's where the robots came in. The idea was that riders would be sent on a trip back in time to the Jurassic Age, where they'd encounter intricate scenes of dinosaurs caring for their young or squaring off in battle. In other words, Disney basically used the Ford partnership as an excuse to make awesome robot dinosaurs. And really, who can blame him? Especially when, in the end, everyone was happy. Disney was able to relocate the dinosaur scenes to Disneyland, where they were incorporated as the Primeval World section of the park's railroad. And as for Ford, it went on to sell 400,000 of the new Mustang model in just its first year on the market four times the company's initial projections. In business, that's known as the robot dinosaur effect. Or, at least it should be. Of course, the fair had some other non-Disney high points as well. For instance, there was an exhibition where a person flew around wearing a jetpack that was originally built for the U.S. Army. It could reportedly fly a distance of 815 feet and go as fast as 60 miles per hour. The pilot at the fair didn't get to do anything quite that cool, but he was a star performer in the fair's Wonderworld musical, and that's nothing to sneeze at. The 64 Fair was also many Americans' introduction to Belgian waffles. Technically, the waffles made their first stateside appearance at the 62 World's Fair in Seattle, but they didn't make much of a splash at that one. However, in New York, fairgoers couldn't get enough of them, Or, as the New York Times reported in 1965, quote, Belgian waffles sold like hotcakes at the World's Fair. In fact, they were such a hit that waffle maker sales spiked all across the country. It wasn't the most culturally enriching part of the fair, but sparking a nationwide waffle craze is still another well-earned feather in the 64 fair's cap. Most of the exhibits and attractions featured at the fair were knocked down by 1966 and the former fairgrounds are now the Flushing Meadows Corona Park. It's a pretty standard city park except for the presence of a few remnants of the fair, the attractions that were too permanent or too unassuming to be destroyed. These leftover bits are monuments to our past visions of the future and to a sense of curiosity and optimism that both our country and the world could Stand to remember more often. I'm Gabe Lusier, and hopefully, you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCShow. You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, and you can write to us directly at thisday at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again soon for another day in history class. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. work.